Welcome to Camera Ready and Able, the podcast that explores the intersection of media change and personal growth. I'm your host, Barbara Barna Able, and my calling is to help you tap into your superpowers, celebrate your unique self, hone your message, and make an impact on the world. Today's episode is brought to you by the phrase, directing talent. Talent, for our purposes, is anyone who steps in front of the camera. A director manages the creative aspects of a production, and that includes not just vision, but the ability to communicate that vision with others. Joining me to discuss is director, writer, producer, Michael Simon. He's Mike to me, so if I slip up during the interview, don't hold it against me. We've known each other since the glory days of MTV and VH1 in the 90s. Throughout his 25-year career, Michael has directed some of the most iconic moments in television, and his shows have attracted over 1.5 billion views in combined audiences across platforms. Uh, Michael's many credits include VH1 Divas, VH1 Storytellers, 25 live Survivor finales, the memorable Priceline.com commercial series featuring William Shatner, plus 26 seasons of the worldwide sensation Ridiculousness. Now Michael has ventured into the podcast space with his F Street Productions and the episodic series Unsung, as well as The Occult Unveiled, and Michael's in pre-production on his first feature film, Prisoners of Time, which is pretty darn exciting, Michael Simon. So welcome. Thank you. This is exciting, right? Because we we uh, spent so many times in the hallways of uh, 1515 Broadway. I know. And and kind of tracking each other's careers and lives. And here we are. And now here we are, both in the podcast space, and we've been reunited after not speaking for a long time, but ca- yeah, tracking each other across the socials. Right. Right. And so when we first met, you were producing and I and I was got to witness in real time as you transitioned into directing. And it starts with little things. Then it very quickly became big directing as as VH1 started to do sort of epic award shows and big sort of stunts and events. So I'm really just curious, what does it take to make that transition? Like, what are your superpowers that make you really great at directing? You you know, I I think it's less than superpowers. I happen to be at a place at a time at MTV Networks um, in the late 80s and 90s where it was all done in-house. We all did it in-house. So if you were able to navigate, um, you know, low budgets and a very creative but very bizarre creative atmosphere, you could um, you could kind of write your ticket. And the story really of how I started directing, directing there, I, I was a PA there first. And there was a woman named Ellen Gusenberg who's gone on to win an Oscar. So, and she produced a little Sunday night show called New Visions, which was a, you know, a new age and some jazz video clips and occasionally a crossover rock thing. And it was, you know, kind of this. And, and she was leaving and said, you want to produce it? I was like, sure. And uh, so I started producing the show, no, not knowing a lot. And there are two great stories about this particular show. One was how Miles Davis wound, wound up on the show. But the other, in terms of your question, I convinced them to let me make deals with jazz festivals around the country where who would pay for the production. So we would go and I and they said, well, who's going to direct? They go, well, I'll direct it. And I and I they kind of, you know, they meaning the the, you know, uh, ubiquitous executives kind of cocked their head. I said, and I'm free. You know, I'm not, I mean, you know, I'm just you, you pay me a whopping whatever was back then, you know, forty one thousand dollars a year to produce. So let me just direct for that. And so that that became that. And then I just sort of went in a one 
person journey to try to learn the craft and wrote, uh, and this was back then writing actual letters uh, to every variety director I could think of, you know, by and saying, can I watch you? Can, is there any, you know, will you talk to me? And most didn't, but a few did and kind of learning that and took some lighting courses and, I felt like I wasn't, I mean, I think imposter syndrome has stays with people forever, but it was back then I really like, okay, how do I, you know, I know, I, I think I have an instinct for this, but so it was a combination of being in the right place at the right time and just saying, this is what I want to do. I better learn it. What was the most important thing or, or what surprised you when you were observing others that you were like, I didn't know this was a part of directing or who did something really impressive. Sorry to stack a question. But sure, I no. had no idea that you were writing writing to variety directors and taking lighting courses. You did that on the down low. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> the guy named um, I, uh, Bruce Gowers, I, I was the, I, I got in the back of one of his, his, his trucks, one of his productions and you know, that level, or maybe, no, he actually, you know what it was? It was a, um, it was one of the farm aides and I think it was him. And I just sat there and soaked it up and said, oh yeah, I can do this. And also I sort of had some of that because I worked in live sports as a PA. I did like Monday night football for a year out of college and sort of wanted to do live sports. So I knew that that adrenaline kind of excited me. And then with my love of music, being at MTV networks, it just seemed a natural. So that kind of yeah, so that that was it, and then just like sitting there and watching, uh, being in a room with like a bunch of monitors in front of you, just like really, that was like for me, that was fucking it. Like, hey, this is what I want to do. Okay, as you're saying this, I'm actually seeing everything in front of me, and I've sat in many a control room, and so the thing that gets you juiced makes me highly anxious. <laughs> Is that live and multiple things happening at once? So, talk to me just a little bit what, about what you might identify if you're explaining to somebody else. Like, what does it take to be a director? Like, what are the actual? Because one of the things is the ability to like make decisions in real time, to love that frisson of excited live tension. Yeah, I, I think the when people hear director, they think of film directors, um, and they think of you know episodic directors where you're on a you're on a set and you're dealing with actors. Live directing is very much its own animal. So and there's definitely a lot of crossover skills, as I'm, which I'm sure we'll talk about. My feature, you know, what what adapts to that sort of narrative directing, which does adapt and what doesn't. But the ability, I think, live directing is very much. I want it's. There was always a moment. So just to set the scene, this is a live show. You have. It just a a massive amount of technology where you're at the front and you have anywhere from 50 to 150 people doing a job, none of which you could do as well as what they do. You know, the Steadicam operator, you will never be as good as Steadicam. The script person, you'll never be able to do scripts that well, unless that's how you, you know, came up. And, you know, for me, it was always like, so now you like kind of lay out this plan and you just hope it's going to work. And there's an associate director sitting next to you and counting down until it airs, you know, and you're thinking, why am I here? I have no idea what's about to happen. This is terrifying. So when you're, you're, your anxiousness, I would feel or do feel about then when it starts, something changes. And it's just like, I, I feel like my modest IQ goes up quite a bit when that, when that moment hits. And at its best, it's like, particularly when you're doing performance, it's like you're swimming. It is just, it's just all coming together. You have this path and it goes and, and then it goes it, like so fast and then like credits roll and you feel so good. 
I, if I, I'll tell you a quick, quick story, which um, I wrote a little about. I was doing, uh, the end of 1999, I was doing a show, uh, two, or maybe a three-hour special for CBS called Athletes of the Century, which um, was a, you know, what it says, the best football player ever, best basketball. So every athlete who was alive to that point is, is there. Um, the show ended by giving the athlete of the century to Muhammad Ali. So Billy Crystal is from Madison Square Garden, which to me as a, I hate to admit this publicly, but as a Knicks fan, you know, we're in the garden. Well, back then they didn't suck. And I'm doing this show and Paul Simon did the boxer. And, you know, there's a line in the boxer and the clearing stands of fighter and a, whatever that line is in the Paul Simon Goff Funkle song. And I had a shot of Ali and the show's going fine. It's going long, but whatever. And at the end of it, so Billy Crystal does this three minute um, tribute to Ali with like video pro- projection. At the end, he goes, please welcome Sports Illustrated athlete of the century, Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali stands up. So this was 99 and he was, you know, not terribly, uh, he was affected by Parkinson's, but not fully. And he stood up the, with, with every, like Hank Aaron and Michael Jordan, all these people around him. And the whole garden is up on his feet and he gets up. And there were these steps to get from, you know, he's sitting and to get up to the stage. And he goes up and he teeters to one side. And I I remember it time just stopping. And in this probably second and a half thinking, what the fuck am I going to do if Muhammad Ali falls or something happens or he can't? I don't have time for a seminar and there's no executive producers who's going to say, Oh, go to the B plan. I'm really, so like all these, like, what do I do? Like what, what happens? And, and, and he got, he, you know, got right back up and went over and, you know, him and Billy kissed and it was the end of the show, but that that's live. You're on this knife's edge, you know? I mean, there were survivor finales, which were, which comparatively a, was a fairly simple show. Cause it was a, it was a, you know, that we would take, tribal council and and recreated and tropes would you know pick the winner and then we would set up for a reunion but um you know especially the early years i was doing survivor they were like tens and tens of, it's not like tv now i mean there were like 40 pe- million people watching this and there were like times like right before the show where like we the votes were misplaced the like actual votes and they knew, you know, I'm not giving anything away. This has been written about, you know, and, you know, they're recreating the votes based on a tape. And I'm just like, okay, you know, <laughs> it's so, yeah, live is its own animal. It's a nice age. And when it, most of the time, it just, it just goes. Um, and then the other times when something <laughs> happens, you just, you just keep plugging forward. I'm a big believer in ritual. Like, do you have a lucky something? Do you, is there a shirt you like to wear? Is there a thing you, a mug you always have? Anything that, and then, you know, a prep, anything. Yeah. Oh yeah. Quite a few. I mean, I'm, I'm a, as anybody who knows me, I'm fairly OCD, maybe clinically, but I, I, you know, back in the days of uh, regular pencils before everything, you know, scripts and stuff got on iPads, you know, you would have a, a big binder with a script you would turn. And I had like eight sharpened pencils to my right all neatly, all with the same sizer. And as a joke, somebody once glued them together, which I did not take kindly to. Um, so it was always that. I always liked wearing my black Chuck Taylor. So, you know, if it was occasionally you did an award show, you had to, you know, change into a tux. But yeah, I mean, the first big live show I ever did, I'm sure you worked in it. It was the first VH1 uh, Witness Honors. Oh, yeah. Like, Peter, was, you remember that? That so, was incredible. 
that was the first, the second live show, the, the first big one. And I was so nervous after dress rehearsal, I went under the truck and puked. Is <laughs> <laughs> that the one too? Where I, I want to um, acknowledge your incredible um, stomach distress that was a, you know, nervous, anxious response. But isn't that where Pete Townsend did the acoustic Won't Get Fooled Again? Yeah. That was, that's one of the greatest live performances I've ever saw. That was such a treat. And I saw it in rehearsal as well as obviously in the show. Yeah. Yeah. That was that one. Well, you were vomiting. I was just, you know, like wowing to Pete. Um, You know, the thing I really want to acknowledge, and I kind of talked about it a little bit in the introduction, though, is because you glossed over this, is tremendous leadership skills, which we love on the podcast. But to be a director, the director is the leader. And and to have succeeded and had the career you have, you have amazing leadership skills and the ability to communicate your vision to others. And this is so much about camera readiness in the podcast is about communicating. So I really wanted to acknowledge that in you, but also talk about like how important that is because everybody's got to know what's going on. Like you can't just be in your head. Like everybody's I, I, I vibing what Mike's feeling right now is not how live TV works. No, it, it, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, what was you say? It, it's, it's a ritual. It's a process. It's a, I, I find and that, you can really you can really do amazing stuff creatively if you clear the plate. Some people are able to live in clutter. I'm not, and I find particularly in live shows, you just don't want to leave shit to chance. You have to let people know what's going on. They have to feel that there is communication so they can do their jobs, and they and there's there's a clarity because if not, it's just it's just going to show. You know, it's. Even if you say, okay, this song, uh, if, if it's a, like a, you know, a rock song and you just, you're just going to, like, even when you say wing it, it's not really wing it. Like, we're going to have, this is what these 14 cameras are going to do. This is what you, I just may not tell you how I'm going to cut it. You know, it may not be every shot, maybe scripted, but for this two and a half minutes, you guys are all going to do this, you know, and, but, you know, I'm just going to, but, so you give them that freedom, but you give them that freedom within a structure. And, you know, I've learned, and I think that there's a time to everyone likes hearing they're good. They're doing a good job. Everyone likes hearing that they're appreciated, you know, taking out anger at people will never work. I've learned that just not a good way. I don't like hearing it. And it's certainly, you know, so I think that's part of a maturation in this, but you're so correct when you, when you talk about the notion of a collaborative sport, which is anything. And I think our field, that you're only as good as, you know, the person, it's a cliche, but the person in craft service should feel very empowered because what they do is important. And part of that collaboration too is now in communicating with talent. And you have worked with many a mega celebrity household name over the years, as well as, you know, just like real people or contestants on a game show or, you know, or a reality show like Survivor. And one of the things I was curious about is, is there something or things that are kind of universal to all talent that they need to feel or hear? Yeah, I think because, you know, most of my experience with musicians or, you know, contestants or hosts, you know, some scripted stuff, but so I don't want to talk exactly about actors, but I think generally a, a performer, a person in front of the camera wants to feel that you care. I think that's the common denominator. It's not that you have, you know, because because some people don't want to, know what you're doing with cameras or what, what, if there's a lighting change or, you know, how they want to know that you care. 
I think. And that's, I think, the most important thing I can impart to talent. Like, I've got you on this. I've got you. You know, I'm not going to, you know, do everything in my power. And if you bring something up to me, we'll address it. I think that's the most important thing for me as a director. I've seen it in, prof- in, in all performance and all levels. Like, let them know you're there, you know, like even doing like a, you know, like a, we call it a shiny floor competition show. I don't Wait, really. Can I interrupt you right there? Because this has come up recently. Can you just explain to the uninitiated what a shiny floor competition means? Yeah. So a shiny floor, it's called a shiny floor. Well, I mean, it's like, you know, an American Idol or Voice or any, any show, Memories Not Tell, any, any show like that. It's called shiny floor because they generally take places on a stage and the stage is always a high luminance black because for, you know, it's an easy surface for someone to dance or sing on and it looks good with. 5,000 movable, movable lights hitting it. Um, so they're called shiny floor shows and, you know, they, they become their own, they've come, become their own ecosystem. But, you know, my approach when we did, and I've done, you know, Madison Dance Crew and I did Rockstar and I did Fake Off and, and uh, probably 10 others I'm not thinking of now, National Star, blah, blah, blah. And what I always said to these contestants, I don't care who wins or what your reality, that's, I'm not going to do that. I want to make sure when you're on this stage, you understand what's going on, not only where to look, but how you present yourself, how you do the song, why it's better if you do this. I want you all to win. I just want to make sure this, your performance, your one and a half minutes of covering, you know, uh, a Johnny Cash song is going to be as fucking good as we can make it and know that we got you on this. And, you know, to even the best experience I've ever had with, you know, the top, you know, like David Bowie. So um, another series which we did sort of together was VH1 Storytellers, which was still, so it was, um, you know, an, an intimate performance where an artist would tell the story about a song and then play the song, real simple. Started with Ray Davis from uh, The Kinks. I was there. You were there. Remember what he said, by the way? When he was doing that show, oh, you'll probably format this and uh, take the right. <laughs> and then every storyteller, is, I, th- I think they still do them, it says inspired by Ray Davis. <laughs> so, so we were, um, you know, we had the golden run with that show. Um, we were just doing some insanely interesting, iconic talent one week. I think it was one week I shot R.E.M., Tony Bennett, Tori Amos, and then Bowie. And it was like, wow, this is the best. It's like, you know, for me, I mean, doesn't get much better than that. So I remember, so Bowie, who had a real, uh, you know, some artists had more of an interest visually what was happening and Bowie being Bowie, you know, really looked at the show and sent us some stills of lighting he liked and so forth. And and there was a lot of stories about the show, but what would the, the opening of that show? So um, if you go back and watch those episodes, we always came in in the middle of a song. So we came in the middle of Life on Mars and he asked me, you know, how are you going to end the song? And so the song ends with about a, a 15, 20 second piano flourish. Um, and the piano player was uh, upstage right of him. And he was talking, you know, Michael, what are we going to do? Just the fact that David Bowie is talking to me, I mean, you know, uh, and he and I explained why I want to take a steady cam and I want to move 
you know, you're going to finish singing and he's going to steady cam behind the piano player. So we'll see his hands. We'll see you in the back. And he goes, perfect. I'll turn upstage and I'll split. Um, and the key light will split me. I go, great. It's one of the favorite shots I ever did. It was just epic. You know, he's song ending and there's Bowie standing and the song ends and, you know, 200 people just electric in this room and just talking about communication. I, I mean, it's, it's David Bowie, but I still think he like, he felt empowered enough to like, I don't have to worry about, you know, I'm the performer here. I don't have to worry that this guy is not going to care or just do something which doesn't make sense. And it's about, you know, doing your homework. I mean, there's a lot of things. It's about doing your homework. It's about knowing your craft. And it's also about, you know, a lot of directing and I think talent work. I don't know if you find this, but is having enough faith in yourself that you could give somebody who's accomplished information, new information and direction. I mean, do you find that? That's a really good question. So broadly, before I answer your question, I, in my categories, what you're really talking about is building trust. And, what, and how do we build trust with people and how important that is? Because without that trust, you can't capture the magic that you're describing, right? And there's just, yeah. it's really built on trust. And, and there's so many ways that we communicate that, that you've just tapped into. One is being able to articulate it. Two, a lot also has to do with body language and tone, right? And, and we meet people where they are because some people need a much more direct approach. This is what's happening. David and this other, and somebody else might be like, so David, I want to walk you through how different people need to be approached in different ways. And your goal is not to be heard. Your goal is to like make the best show and make an impact. So you're going to, you're going to meet them where they are. So the other thing you've got in spades is emotional intelligence, because you can obviously read that person and what they're feeling in that moment, regardless of what their team may have already told you in your research, you're going to, you can see what's going on in that moment. They're yeah. nervous. All those, all those things. That's part of your gift. And then to answer your question about us, yes, because I've had to work through that as my career grew. Well, and you know, even going back to just you know talent booking days and being the talent executive on some of these shows and having to go in and tell someone you're going to have to put that that lighted object you have in your hand. We can't do that here. And now I need you. Now I've just told you you have to take the, your thing away. Um, and now I need to go do something that maybe you don't even really feel like doing right now. Um, so yes, yeah, so part of it is like you know drawing deep and like however one's going to approach that. But certainly as a coach and as my career has evolved and, and working with very very accomplished people, it is it's the same thing. It's so much about building trust, and that's one of the reasons I was asking that question because I feel universally. No matter how accomplished you are, people often come to me because they're transitioning. They're doing something new. Like you're mega successful what you're doing, but now you're going to go do something you haven't done before. So you might be an athlete transitioning to a broadcast career. You could be uh, super successful in this thing, but the world has shifted. And we all know you as this kind of host or this writer or model or whatever you are. And now you got to go do something different. So you're out of your comfort zone. So they need to feel trusted and they need to know that I'm going to make sure they don't fail that everybody wants to succeed. And everybody, to your point, as you talked about earlier, has a teeny bit of imposter syndrome. At some yeah, point. I, I, I think, I think, you know, I don't, I'm curious uh, the parallels you find between, you know, a CEO of a fortune, you know, 200 company, as opposed to, you know, what our world we came from, which is, you know, creative people. And I think there's a, there's some universal amongst a lot of creative people with a million shades, but the imposter syndrome is one and vulnerability is the other. Mm -hmm. I don't think, I don't think 
creatives get to vulnerable parts, I get to creative parts without tapping into something. I mean, I suppose there are people who've written great plays or direct a great movie who do it from, you know, with no sense of impending doom. But my experience is that most people have that and that, you know, and I think, look, it's a lot of people who didn't fit in perfectly, you know, growing up. It's a lot of people, I think, who, you know, unwittingly became like the cool person. Like they never kind of set it, set out to, and then suddenly like, you know, um, I mean, I think about punk rock days, you know, we were probably stared at and then suddenly we became cool. It's like, how did, how did this happen? But I think I, I you know, so I, I, I tap into that and I think, you know, this notion of um, people with empathy and pa- I, for whatever reason, mm-hmm. I seem to have a lot of that. And you I, know what else I'm going to interrupt you because what you've said over and over again without actually saying these exact words is you have a lot of respect for the creative process. Yeah, I do. And I think you have to, because it's otherwise you're just creating, you're doing something else. You're not, and it's, it, it's an odd business, right? I mean, it's an odd thing we do for a living. We're descendants of, you know, the vaudeville people who traveled around the middle ages and, you know, put on things and then got thrown out of town and, you know, <laughs> on to the next one. I mean, I really, I really believe that. I mean, yes, it, it's done well. It's paid off for a lot of people, you know, in the last 50 years, but you know, the notion of somebody making a living singing or dancing or helping people who sing or dance or act or whatever is like, what? <laughs> you know, I mean. And, and now they're businesses and brands and not that they weren't before, but the language has changed. The responsibility has changed. And um, very few people who are that creative when they start out think, because you know what, my goal is really to be the CEO of this giant corporation that has my name on it. Yeah. And I'm responsible for the livelihoods of all these people. So that's a jumbo learning curve. Yeah. Right. And so to your point, it's it's about supporting that process. And also the, the fine line of being a fan without, you know, totally overdoing it. But you know what I mean? It's like, I respect your work. I respect you, the process, building trust. Yeah. To your point, I care about what you do. But also I'm not, I'm going to make sure that you look good. Like you're not... You're not going out there without a net. Ever. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. yeah. Have that, have that net. And then, you know, and, and how to weave a story around that, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and why, what's, what excites me about, terrifies me, what excites me about this at this point in my career is crossing over and doing a feature is just that it's like, oh, I can apply everything I knew, but now I can hopefully take it one more step and have actors say these words I wrote. How are you preparing tell this, for this story? Oh, uh, it's, you know, I mean, it's, I, I say it out loud only because, it, so it, it, this feature I've been trying to get made is now in its ninth year, which, which people tell me in the, in the film, well, that's not bad. You know, nine years, you know, that's, I said, well, had I started 23 or even 33, perhaps 43, it might've, but um, you know, I didn't, I started when I started. Um, that preparation has been, kind of throwing out everything I've ever, luckily I've about halfway in this process, um, an old friend of mine who actually I was introduced by a mutual colleague of ours, Tom Kanuski. Oh, Tom Kanuski. We, we don't want to get going to all out. But we are you, alumni. Tom Kanuski. We love you, Tom Kanuski. So anyway, he introduced me a guy named Jonathan Baker, who I don't even know how he knew him. This was in the late, this was late nineties, early two thousand, back in New York. And Jonathan was uh, a theater guy and a finance guy 
and was trying and moving sort of over into the film TV world. And somebody approached him about doing a jazz show. So because I did that show in New Visions, Tom said, oh, we should talk to Michael Simon. And so Jonathan and I started developing this show, uh, which was a, just a, like a simple you know, jazz show. And then uh, 9-11 happened and we lost, we lost touch. And Jonathan went on to have, uh, he was a Sony exec for a long time and went independent. And I got back in touch with him and I said, I have a couple of film projects. And he, I really went to school with him. He really, he forced me to write it. I mean, I co-wrote the script, but he really forced me. The story changed radically midway in because originally it was a more of a period piece and then it became something else. And so, and just understanding what a feature film is and what a narrative, which I, you know, intuitively know, and again, I've done some scripted stuff, but not, I'm clearly not known for that. And then the hurdles of getting past the point where it's not only just I'm a first time director, I'm not really a first time director, but I'm a first time narrative director. And if I was 26 and wrote this screenplay, I think a lot of people go, oh, fine, you know. He wrote, you know, but they look at like 30 years of me directing one thing, you know, successfully, but like, why does he want to do a feature? What's this about, you know? So the, a lot of the preparation was completely new. Um, it also helps, I would say this to anybody, if you're going to do developing, make sure you have a good day job. And I have a day job <laughs> I really love, which is directing. And with ridiculousness, it's the best day job ever. So, um, but the, so the preparation for that has, has been, um, and I'm a quick study. And once I sort of, again, but it's similar, like, don't be afraid of your creative instincts. There's just a different form you, you know, and you lean into story structure and you get to, into, you know, what you know better than most about casting. And that's, that's whole animal about financing, finding someone to fucking, luckily I found an angel investor to um, get us through development and to, um, you know, now we're actually we're making offers now. It's with an actor. So please, I can't say, but please send vibes that this person will do it. But, you know, packaging. So it, there's a lot of on the business side. There's just a lot of, and just steal yourself, you know, just uh, steal yourself. Don't, uh, I, I, I can't imagine doing nothing but developing and trying to make a living out of that. Like if I didn't have directing like actual things, then I, but the combination's great. I learned that years ago at VH1 was the, you know, TV, part of the joy is the shorter development process from idea to execution because films take a really long time. Oh, yes. So, but um, um, you're newer to the camera ready and able universe, but um, the everything takes a long time. Play the long game is a theme that comes up on this podcast a lot from every successful creator I've spoken which is, to. Which is yeah. so good to hear. I mean, I think I, I like intuitively knew that, but it's so good to hear that, especially because you're so plugged into mm-hmm. so many people who are doing different things creatively and trying to, as you say, do the next thing, whether it's so, it's so comforting to know, because I think a lot of, you know, just going back to this theme of this kind of unique part of the universe we inhabit, I don't think, again, if you're in the business of making paper clips, you have a project for nine years, you would <laughs> just keep around about, you know, you know, nah, those fucking pink, you know, plastic paper clips, just we're going to, we're going to scrap it. We're going to move on. <laughs> But making a film, which, you know, best case, you know, 80 people, now hopefully more than 80 people will watch it. But you know what I'm saying? It's like just, so that's, uh, yeah. Well, it's, um, Michael, to that point too, um, 
across so many things, but just even sort of like, you know, what, what's your personality? It goes back to being a director. Like, what can you stand and anxiety and things? And I was like, if you need the trains to always run on time, if you need your day to be the same every day, you need to go work at Dunder Mifflin because <laughs> this is not the industry for you. Yeah. But if you like surprises and every day is a little bit different and you never know, and you know, exercising those muscles, then you, this is a place for you. Yeah. But this, yeah. Um, I want to flip this just a little bit too and ask, because now as you're starting to work with actors and you've again, worked with so many people as uh, directing on the TV side is what are some of the attributes or tips or suggestions for talent to understand what makes you directable and why that is important? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I think, um, if you're talent, I think you really need to have the ability to to filter out all the noise around you and really listen to. Now, sometimes in TV, you know, TV can be more of a writer medium and certainly EPs like showrunners, you know, if that's the voice, but whatever that voice is, who is guiding this, really have learn how to filter the other shit out because you will get contradictory notes and you will get people who are having different, you know, and you will get people, a lot of people will tell you what you want to hear. So really figure, figure that thing out of who is telling you, it's typically the director, but it doesn't have to be, it, you know, telling you not what you want to hear, what you need to hear and be flexible. And I think this is any level of success. Be flexible, understand the process and my goodness, respect the crew. Go out of your way to love the crew. Like whatever you think internally, like it doesn't matter. It matters mm-hmm. because I have been on too many sets where talent has ruined it by the way they are. And there's some pretty big names out there whose careers are not what they people might have thought a couple of years ago because of how they treat people in front of them. I talk about that a lot, Michael, because one just simply, if you want to be a guest, like even, you know, do news segments, you're, you're, whatever you're doing starts the minute you, well, it's actually before you arrive, but I'm like, you're kind to the security guard when you're checking into the building, the person who mics you, everything, because you want to be a good guest because good guests get invited back. That's the way, right? And so then to your point, whenever I look at someone who has a long career, I think that's somebody who people want to work with. And so there are even people whose public personas might be a little bit outrageous, but if they consistently work, that means that they are really professional in ways that it matters. And even going back years when Billy on the street was new, right? It's like, he didn't come into meetings and scream at people, <laughs> right? He always showed up on time. Yeah. And, 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 and when you do um, scream or someone screams, it's probably for a good reason. Like, okay. Got it. But I was going to go back. It's like even back in the day, speaking of Tom Kanuski, doing eight track flashback with Suzanne <laughs> Summers. But I loved her. But I mean, Suzanne, by the way, I still have my Thigh Master and Butt Master, which she gave me quality products I uh, love to use. But my point is, she knew every light. She knew the name of uh, every single person on the crew, right? Consistently works. And so I can make a wonderful list of people I've known now for however many years and people coming up that I can tell this is a reason why this person's career keeps growing or why they're, you know, a mogul now because of how yeah, And you know what to expect. I mean, you should, I think if you're talent and you don't say hello to the security guard, you should probably question a lot more about you. I mean, I, but I mean, but for whatever reason, if you are forget, just do it, you know, 
you know, people, you know, kid about ridiculousness because it's aired continuously. You know, it's, you know, they're the, the memes of the MTV schedule where it's just nothing but ridiculous. And it's funny because people think I get, you know, like I'm a gazillionaire with residuals. Um, you know, I'm doing fine, but it, just for the record, I don't get paid on every, every repeat. <laughs> Um, but it's fine. So like that show, which is a, you know, a, basically it's a clip show and Rob Deerdick, who's the host and creator, who's one of the most brilliant humans I've ever met. He dropped out, I think in 10th or 11th grade, became a, you know, next to Tony Hawk, probably the biggest skateboarder on earth and just started doing these projects and started doing them with MTV and formed this company. And I didn't even know who he was. And or maybe I hadn't known his name. I was doing America's Dance Crew for MTV, and one of the executives, Lauren Dulgens, she called me, and they did this pilot. They wanted to do a show called Ridiculousness. It's vaguely, it's like the internet version of America's Funniest Videos. I'm like, well, you know, whatever. And I remember sitting at this desk I'm at now, and I watched the pilot, which was, um, you know, technically that, but it was, and my son, who was, I guess, 11 at the time, walks in, he goes, Dad, that, that, um, that's Rob. It's like the funniest. And he's saying, this is the funniest thing I've ever seen. You have to do this show. I'm like, okay. And I remember, um, it was in Sean December. This goes back to 2010 and the dates were moving. And I always do a show for CBS home for the holidays. And then I was doing survivor finales in December that time. And I didn't think I could do it. And I called my agent. I said, you know, give me, a, I don't think I can do it. And I remember Lauren called and yelled at me. And then um, Shane Nickerson was a Was that, that one of those moments where yelling? Yes, absolutely. And when I think back, if I had not done this, you know. Um, so we figured out a way and we did it. And it was fine. And MTV didn't air the show for like nine months. And then I um, I think I think Van said, when Van Van Hoff was there, that it, it focus group better than anything they've ever done. I believe that's true. So it, it, it finally aired in August 2011. I lost track of it and it did really well. And then it's been, so for 10 years and 800 shows later and spinoffs and no end in sight, thankfully. We've done more episodes starting in July, 2020 after the pandemic to now. We do six shows in a day. And what Rob has taught me, and which is a great lesson because it's it's a simple show compared to like a big performance special. You know, it's a pattern show. It's But the comedy they do, you just have to, Keep it on the track and like, don't do a pickup. Don't stop that flow on stage unless you absolutely have. Don't worry about it. If the shot's not perfect, it doesn't matter. And so what I've learned there is that to me is a great lesson for directors. I think a great lesson for talent. When something is working, don't worry about the peripherals. Just worry about what works and keep doing that, you know? And it's, it's, it's oddly, as I go into this, you know, more of this narrative space with actors, something I, I, I hope I can utilize, like, we're going to find this where we land with a, with a character. And we're not going to, you, you, you won't have time to reinvent it on set. You know, on 25 days of shooting, I'm gonna, we're not going to have time. So lean in to what, what, what works. So I'm sorry if that's a very spirally answer when I went through the history of ridiculousness to... Uh... I loved it. And I have loved having you on the podcast. Will you come back as you do more and more and, and tell us about like what's happening on set and share more? You have incredible insights, Mike. 
This is very, very generous of you. Absolutely. Well, thank you. So the film is called Prisoners of Time. We're in, we're about, we're blocking and packaging with actors, but it's, um, it's a story which involves a dad and his teenage daughter and Me Too and Norman Mailer and Marilyn Monroe. And it's a script I co-wrote and I hope to be uh, shooting it this year or early next. Okay. Incredible little nuggets and a tease there. I can't wait either. So thank you very much again. And thank you for listening to Camera Ready Nable. If you would like to learn how you can succeed on and off camera, please go to my website, ableintermedia.com, and download my free ebook, 12 Tips for Success on Camera and Off. And as always, please be sure to hit the subscribe button if you haven't already. Thank you.